All right, now we dig into chapter number three this week. Uh, we ended chapter number two last week, and I'll say a quick word about some of the things that we talked about. You have a very interesting transition take place, and uh, I confess to you last week that there is a bit of debate as to when Paul stops talking to Peter. Now, he is recounting what took place whenever Peter came to Antioch of Syria and uh, showed his hypocrisy. He had been uh, eating and fellowshipping with the Gentiles that were there. Uh, but then when some uh, people came from James, from Jerusalem, Peter withdrew himself, would not have fellowship with the Gentiles. And uh, some would say, well, you know, that's just Christian courtesy. He didn't want to offend him, this side or the other. Uh, but let me remind you that it was even Paul himself that spoke about uh, doing things that were uh, expedient for the gospel, not just things that you had a right to do. So Paul is well aware of this idea of trying to be careful lest we offend other Christians. Even with that knowledge, Paul still withstands Peter to the face because he was to be blamed. Because this wasn't a matter of preferences, it wasn't a matter of opinion, it wasn't a matter of taste, it was a matter of doctrine, it was a matter of liberty in Jesus Christ. And Paul understood the impact that Peter's actions could have had on this little Gentile church. And so, uh, that's what we read through last week. And he talks about in verse 14 of chapter 2, But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of Gentiles, and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? So he basically looks at Peter, and he says, Peter, you're a Jew, and you don't even live like a Jew. And now you're going to look at these Gentiles and expect them to live like Jews. And he goes on to describe one of the most important doctrines in the entire Word of God. And I'm going to do my best to not labor on it because we've had a real focus and emphasis on it. And we're going to touch on it later. But that is the doctrine of justification. The doctrine and the act whereby God has literally placed us within, spiritually within, Jesus Christ. Meaning when He was crucified on Calvary that the body of sin might be destroyed, our body of sin was crucified on Calvary that it might be destroyed. When He raised to walk in newness of life, you and I raised to walk in newness of life. And uh, I tell you, the doctrine of justification is the basis and foundation for all Christian liberty from Old Testament law. And so Paul begins to describe that, and we spent a lot of time last week talking about the terminology, the faith of the Son of God. We're not going to spend all that time this week. But I do want to read verse 21 by way of segue, and then we'll read the first nine verses of chapter number 3. Paul summarizes the argument that he's been making in verse number 21 of chapter 2. He says, I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth crucified among you. This only would I learn of you. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are ye so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? Have ye suffered so many things in vain, if it be yet in vain? He therefore that ministereth to you the Spirit and worketh miracles among you, doeth he it by the works of the law? or by the hearing of faith. Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, 
Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. Now let me say a quick word about verse number 21. Because in many ways it is going to summarize the entire book of Galatians. Paul says, I do not frustrate the grace of God. I shared with you last week the ideas about what a frustration means. And, you know, if you've ever changed a flat tire, you know what a frustration uh, is. If you've ever, you know, put together a barbecue grill, if you've ever worked with kids, amen, you know what frustration is. And if I could just couple a word with the word frustration, I think it will give a lot of clarity for us. Let me put this word with it, the word stumbling block. You see, when you got that new grill for uh, Christmas or, you know, some of you men, you might have got one for Father's Day. It's not the getting of the grill that bothered you. It wasn't even the finished product of the grill. I mean, we all love a grill, amen? It was not even the putting together of the grill that bothered you. If you're like me and like most men, we like to put things together. We like to tinker and try to fix things. But what was frustrating to you was the thousand stumbling blocks that you encountered in that endeavor. You know when you dropped the bolt and it fell in between the cracks of your back deck. You remember when you got half of it together and realized that you had it turned the wrong way. You remember when you got everything done and then you clicked on that starter and it didn't work. That's what the frustration was. And any endeavor that we have in life, it's not necessarily the endeavor that bothers us. Or if I could put it another way, it's not the road trip of life that upsets us. It's the flat tires and the fender benders along the way. It's the stumbling blocks that are a frustration to us. And I think what Paul is saying here is this. I'm not going to put a stumbling block in front of the grace of God. Understand that the work of the grace of God in the life of the believer does not end at the moment of our being born again and regenerated. But rather, in many ways, it begins at that moment. You see, it's not just been grace when we got saved. It's been grace ever since we got saved, too. Every day, all along the way, it's been a perpetual work of grace and of the Spirit of God in our life. Notice again the language that he uses where he says, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? He's going to use another terminology over in, uh, I believe it's chapter uh, number 5 or uh, chapter number 6. But he uses this terminology in uh, chapter 5, verse 7. He says, Ye did run well. Who did hinder you? that ye should not obey the truth. In other words, who put a stumbling block in front of you? Who slowed you down in this run of life and this walk of grace that you're in? Because the terminology that Paul uses when he speaks of falling from grace, he's not speaking of losing your salvation, but he's speaking of having been justified by grace, having been sanctified by grace, redeemed, forgiven by grace, adopted by grace, walking in grace and in the newness of life, and then just as these Galatians did, choosing to then begin to measure your walk with the Lord according to the works of the law, and falling away from that high level of grace that God has called you unto. He's not saying that you have uh, plucked yourself out of the Father's hand. He's not saying that you've uh, undone what Calvary did. But what he's saying is you've been living and walking in grace, 
And now you've chosen to walk and measure yourself by the standard of the law. Instead, you've fallen back from that walk of grace that God has called you unto. So, Paul is saying this is a perpetual walk. And he says, I do not frustrate the grace of God. I don't put a stumbling block in front of it. I don't try to hinder it. He says, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Can I say that the most clear and the most effective argument for justification by faith and faith alone is the cross of Calvary? If we didn't need the cross of Calvary, why did Christ go to the cross of Calvary? If we could do it through our church membership, if we could do it through baptism, if we could do it through good works, then what was Calvary all about? And so it's almost as though, as, as Paul makes this segue from the personal and historical portion of the book into the doctrinal portion of the book, that he begins by giving us this basic truth of justification that we are in Christ, and then saying that if righteousness could come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. And he's going to give us several arguments, several reasons why we are to understand and believe that salvation is by faith alone. Let me say it just explicitly, just to have it out there again that salvation is either all of works or all of grace. It cannot be both. If it's all of grace, then works cannot merit our salvation. And if it's all of works, then it can no more be of grace, because grace is the bestowing of God's favor uh, apart, totally separated and excluded from our attempts at righteousness. Yea, in fact, grace is the very proof that our works is not good enough, because God did it by grace. The book of Ephesians tells us in uh, chapter 2, it says that uh, by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So I think there's no question, by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified, chapter 2 and verse 16 says. It must either be by works or by grace. I want us to notice some of the language Paul uses in chapter number 3. Now, if, if you want to look at your notes, you're welcome to. Uh, the fellow that wrote the notes takes a little bit different approach to this, uh, and not a, a, a contrary approach, but he chooses to focus on the doctrine of sanctification. Let me say, I do believe in sanctification. Sanctification is a biblical doctrine. Now, you say, what is sanctification? Well, the word sanctified literally means to be set apart. And sanctification is that act whereby God separates and cleanses us for His glory and for His calling. And there are two facets to sanctification, just as there are uh, all of these biblical doctrines. There is both a practical and a positional aspect to it. One of the things that will help you as you study your Bible is to really wrap your mind around that. And all of these words are used in two different ways, both positionally and practically. Let me give you a good example. How many, well, I'm, I'm not going to ask you this, but, but I just want you to ask yourself in your own mind and in your own heart. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. Uh, but, I, but I could ask you how many of us are saved, and most of us, I hope all of us, would raise our hands and say, yes, preacher, I'm saved. And I could ask you, when you got saved, did you get saved from sin? And you'd say, oh, yes, I got saved from sin. And if I said, now, how many of you have sinned in the past week? If we were honest, every one of us would probably raise our hands. You see, positionally, we're already saved. And positionally is not theoretically either. Positionally is a reality. It's just a spiritual reality. We are absolutely saved from the punishment of sin. Nothing can undo that. John 5.24 says we're passed from death unto life, and we shall not come into condemnation. 
But can I say to you that sometimes the word saved, as it's used in the Bible, is not necessarily speaking just of our positional salvation. Uh, you know, let me give you an example. You know what the Bible says? The Bible speaks of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, that He saved us from death, uh, and that from so great a death, or that He delivered us from so great a death, and doth deliver us, and will deliver us, is what the Bible says. So you and I, we have been saved from the punishment of sin. Right now, as we submit and surrender to the work of the Holy Spirit, we're being saved from the power of sin. The Bible says in Romans chapter 6, sin shall not have dominion over you. It's the will of God that we live in victory over sin. But there's coming a day, the Bible teaches, when our uh, vile body shall be changed like unto His glorious body. And uh, the Bible says in 1 John chapter number 3, Beloved, now we the sons of God. That's positional. Now we the sons of God. And it does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him. For we shall see Him as He is. There's coming a day when we'll be saved from the presence of sin. And so in the very same way, sanctification is that act whereby God has set us apart, cleansed us. The Bible says ye are sanctified in Christ Jesus. But I think most of us would have to admit that uh, there's times, maybe all the time, when we don't live a very sanctified life in a practical sense. And so I do think there is some truth and some validity to the doctrine of sanctification here. Uh, I think it will be worth your time to, to read lesson number four and to spend some time in it. But I want to focus both on what Paul is saying, particularly to these churches of Galatia, and then the segue that he gives into the life of Abraham and the defense of the doctrine of justification by grace. He says, O foolish Galatians, who hath, notice he used this word, who hath bewitched you? Now, we know what that word bewitch means. It means for someone to have, as it were, a spell put upon. And uh, it has to do with the idea of sorcery and witchcraft. People that are maybe in a trance or something of that sort. Now, let me tell you that I don't think Paul is necessarily saying that these people were in a trance. I don't think he's necessarily saying that these people were under a spell. But I think he uses that word for this one explicit reason. Because when you see someone that is ensnared in error, it's like you're dealing with somebody that's just not themselves anymore. You ever met someone, or maybe you knew someone that you went to church with in uh, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, and then all of a sudden they got caught up in a bad doctrine. Sometimes it's not just caught up in a bad doctrine, sometimes it's a good doctrine that they take the emphasis off Jesus Christ and place it on that doctrine. And you try to talk to them, and it's like they are consumed with this error that they've fallen into. I'm going to make a statement, and I think it's actually from the Ironside book that I've been reading, and I can't quote it verbatim, but he made this statement that error has a way of ensnaring people that the truth does not. Error has a grip on a person's mind that oftentimes the truth does not have. And let me say that you'll have a lot of times a lot bigger trouble trying to get a cult member to change what they believe about something than you would the average person in a church. There's a reason for that. We invest ourselves in that doctrine. And one thing's for sure, the more you invest yourself in something, the more deeply dug in you're going to be about it. And so I think what Paul is saying here is you ran so well, you walked in grace, you understood it, but you've been drawn away. It comforts me to be able to teach through this because I've made a lot of statements and, 
And I hope by the grace of God they've all been true. But it's given you one side of the coin concerning ecclesiastical separation. And I want to try to give you the other side. You say, preacher, what do you believe about churches and gospels that are different than the gospel of grace? I believe we ought to write anathema over them. That's what the book of Galatians chapter 1 says. It says, let them be accursed. I think we ought to have no ecclesiastical fellowship with any institution or organization, or whatever you want to call it, that claims salvation by anything other than the blood of Jesus Christ. But now some of you, and, and I don't expect you to, to, to own up to it or fess up to it, but, but I know it's true. Some of you have sat there and thought, well, you know, preacher, you mentioned about Methodists and their belief about sinless sanctification and their belief about being able to eradicate the old man. But preacher, I had a whatever, mother, father, grandparent, aunt, uncle, brother, sister, that went to a Methodist church and preacher, I know they were saved. I mentioned about the church of God and their belief in salvation through baptism, or baptism being necessary for salvation. And by the way, to, to claim that baptism is necessary for salvation is to preach another gospel. It is. It's to add works to the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But some of you said, Preacher, I've got a friend or a loved one that goes to a Church of God church, and I believe that they're saved. Let me tell you something. I'm thankful that just as my good works cannot save me, just as my doctrinal intellect cannot save me or make me more saved, my error cannot make me unsaved. Some of you say, what about those people, preacher, that go to these churches that are wrong, but I believe they're saved? Well, the truth is, there's been many people that have put their faith in Jesus Christ to save them and redeem them from their sins. And then just as these Galatians have then departed from this walk of grace, Paul, when he speaks of them, look what he says in verse 2. This only what I learn of you, received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith. Paul was speaking to saved people here. I've got loved ones that go to churches and, and, and they don't endorse that church's bad doctrine, but they go to that church. And that church may not even preach bad doctrine, but the organization that church is a part of preaches bad doctrine. That's one of the reasons I, I, I'm content to be independent, because the only thing we're hitched up to is Jesus Christ. And I know He's always going to be right. But I know them that go to these churches. You see, again, the Methodist church was founded in John Wesley's belief uh, that you could eradicate your sinful flesh through good works. Well, that's not walking in grace any longer. That's walking in good works. The Presbyterian church was based upon Calvinism and the doctrines of John Calvin, uh, which claim that if you ever backslide, it's proof that you were never saved. That's saying if you don't live right, that you're not saved. That, in a sense, is salvation by works. Of course, the Church of God and the charismatic movement that was founded uh, in the Campbellite movement that claims that you have to be baptized to be saved, and even many of them uh, believe that if you do not live right, you can lose your salvation. That is pure, unadulterated work salvation. But I'll go ahead and tell you that the average Presbyterian church today doesn't preach five-point Calvinism. The average Methodist church today doesn't talk about eradication of the flesh. Now, a lot of charismatic churches today still do talk about 
falling from grace, as they call it, and losing your salvation. But let me tell you this. Just as our salvation is not based upon our good works, it's also not nullified by our bad works. You say, what about that loved one that I have, preacher? If they ever put their faith in Jesus Christ, the finished work of Christ on Calvary, if they meant business with God, then God saved them. And it doesn't matter what church they went to, it can't unsave. I'm not endorsing bad doctrine. You know, If you've sat through these past three weeks, you know that I'm not endorsing bad doctrine. But I do think it's worth pointing out that as Paul talks about these people, these are saved people with the Spirit of God indwelling within them. And yet they have began to look again to the law as the means of their justification. It doesn't change what happened to them when they got saved, but it does hinder them in this walk of grace that they're in. So notice what he says. Again, look at verse number 1. He says that ye should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. Let's dissect that phrase. He says, before whose eyes. Well, I don't believe that Paul is talking about their physical eyes, because these Gentiles, uh, they were pagans when Paul found them. The likelihood of all the people in this church having been on some sort of sojourn in Jerusalem and being of the proper age to have been present there when Christ was crucified, uh, that notion I think most of us could say is ridiculous. That's not what Paul is saying. But he's speaking about their spiritual eyes. And what he's saying is to these churches, there's no question that you know the truth of Christ's death on Calvary. Now, let's ask ourselves this. We don't have to. We could take the Word of God uh, for granted and and add its Word. But let's ask ourselves if that's true. Turn with me to Acts chapter 13. And let's see what it was that Paul said to them. He says, was evidently set forth crucified among you. Was that the message that Paul gave to this church? Well, let's see. Look in Acts chapter number 13. We're not going to read all of the message that Paul gave to them. Excuse me, but I do want to read, uh, starting at verse 26, and read down just a few verses. Now, remember, this is one of these Galatian churches. And Paul says in verse 26, Men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, that's the Jews, and whosoever among you feareth God. So this message is not only to Jews that would have been present in the sanctuary there at Antioch of Poseidia, but also to any Gentiles. He says, Whosoever among you feareth God, to you is the word of this salvation sent. For they that dwell at Jerusalem and their rulers, because they knew him not, nor yet the voices of the prophets, which are read every day, they have fulfilled them in condemning him, speaking of Christ. And though they found no cause of death in him, yet desired they Pilate that he should be slain. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a sepulcher. But God raised him from the dead, And he was seen many days of them which came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses unto the people. Wouldn't you say that Paul's message to the church at Antioch of Poseidia was a message of Jesus Christ and him crucified? See, what Paul is doing is he is hearkening their minds back to that first time when they heard the gospel. And can I say to you that anybody that has truly been born again, It doesn't matter what they believe now. If they've truly been born again, there was a time when they believed right and put their faith in Christ on Calvary. That's what Paul's saying. He's trying to draw their mind back to this moment in time when they saw Christ on the cross. 
You can imagine, and I'm going to try to not be too dramatic in what I'm saying because I don't want to add anything to the Word of God, but you can almost imagine the tone in Paul's voice. If he had been standing there amongst them instead of writing a letter by his hand, you can almost see Paul looking and saying, look again to the cross of Calvary. Remember what he's just got through saying. He just got through saying in verse 19 of chapter 2, For I through the law am dead to the law, that I might live unto God, for I am crucified with Christ. It's almost as though Paul says, look again to the cross of Calvary. See your old man crucified again. That's what justified you. That's what forgave you from your sins. He says, and yet now you've departed from trust in what Christ did on Calvary. It was good enough to save you, but now all of a sudden it's not good enough to sanctify you in a practical sense. It was good enough to redeem you, but now it's not good enough to renovate you. He says, no, the cross of Calvary is enough. He gives another example. And, and again, if you see these as bullet points almost, if you see verse 1 as a bullet point, if you see verse 2 as a bullet point, verse 3, verse 4, and verse number 5, it's like all of these are reasons Paul is giving, almost to try to jar their minds out of this bewitchment and this bewilderment that they are in. He says, first off, you saw Christ crucified. Evidently, in a spiritual sense. You saw your old man nailed to that cross. He says, this only would I learn of you. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? He says, you were Gentiles. You didn't know anything about the law. But your lack of knowledge about the law did not keep the Spirit of God from birthing you into the family of God and indwelling you. Could I say to you, and I could almost, I could almost put it this way, you were good enough by the cross of Calvary, not by your good works, but you were good enough, and also not in your natural, unregenerate state either. But when you look to the cross of Calvary, it's like he looks at these Galatians and says, when you look to the cross of Calvary, the Spirit of God saw that that was enough to indwell in you. And now do you need the works of the law to do something that Christ's cross couldn't? Now do we need the works of the law to bring to completion and and uh, to give some kind of comprehensive understanding, was the cross of Christ not enough? He says in verse 3, Are ye so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? Uh, you know, and this isn't really my lesson, but I want to say a word or two about this. Can I say that sanctification, in a practical sense in the life of the believer, meaning us being set apart, changed, and growing closer to God, that's never an activity of the works of the flesh. That's always an activity of the surrender to the Holy Spirit. You know why we have so many burnout church members? Because they're trying to do it through their own self-will. You know why we have so many families busting wide open, families that were in good churches, families that, that were raised out of good homes, that everything seemed to be right, but it's like a pressure cooker, and the stress just gets too much. And you see them, it's like it just busts wide open. You don't know what's happened to them. I'll tell you what happened to them. The reason it was like a pressure cooker is because they were trying to live that way for the preacher. They're trying to live that way for their friends at church. They're trying to live that way for everyone around them. Probably their walk with the Lord wasn't where it needed to be. And they were trying to do it through the will of their own flesh. Just trying to play the game. You know what I mean. Can I speak honest with you? You know what I mean. You've met people like that. Just trying to play the game. Now, how do we live this life of grace and walk in grace? We do it through surrender, not through self-will, through surrender. Say, preacher, put that in a practical sense for me. 
In other words, when the Holy Spirit of God stirs your heart about something, you surrender. When the Spirit of God convicts you of sin in your life, you surrender. Say, you're right, Lord, that is sin. You're right, Lord, that is wrong. I'll get it out of my life. You're right, Lord, I do need to talk to that person, witness to that person. You're right, Lord, I do need to be in the house of God. I do need to be in my Bible. I, you're right, Lord, I do need to be praying. It's a matter of surrender. not a matter of the energy of the flesh. And we've got way too many people that's trying to work it up and work it out on their own instead of just surrendering to the leading and guidance of the Holy Spirit. Now, let me go ahead and tell you, I didn't say that's an easy thing. Because every time that your spirit surrenders... Your flesh has to be crucified. Paul said, I die daily. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm just saying it's not a matter of energy. It's a matter of surrender. He says, you began in the Spirit. Are you now going to be made perfect? And by the way, we all know what that word perfect means in the Bible. We all understand that that is not necessarily the conventional idea that we have of perfect. I mean, like me, I have a perfect physique. You understand that. But that's not the kind of perfection it's talking about. It's talking about maturity, and it's not going to be long before I'm going to have a physique like that, amen? Time catches up with you. Uh, meaning a mature, mature thing. He's saying, you began in the Spirit. You began when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. Remember, these are Gentiles. There's no telling how long the time passed before they were even aware of what the works of the law meant. They had been redeemed by the grace of God, and nobody had to come in and tell them. You know what I mean? I, I, I like to see somebody get saved and no one has to come and tell them. Amen? I like it when you see someone get saved. Nobody has to tell them to put some clothes on, to, to, to dress right, to live right. Nobody has to tell them, quit doing this, quit doing that. What does that in their life? Having begun in the Spirit. The Spirit of God came and indwelt these believers at these churches in Galatia. Before these Judaizers ever showed up, they already knew how to love one another. They knew how to live a sanctified, separated life. They knew how to walk with the Lord. Paul says, you began that way. Do you think that the law is going to add something to you that the Spirit could not? He says in verse 4, have you suffered so many things in vain, if it be yet in vain? Imagine, imagine what these Gentile believers went through when they cast off those old vestiges of paganism and heathenism and place their faith in Jesus Christ. You remember what the Grecians said about Paul when he was on Mars Hill? The Stoics and the Epicureans? Some of them said, uh, let us hear what this babbler will say. And others said, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. Now, you remember the characteristic given to the Epicureans and the Stoics that they love to hear some new thing. There on Mars Hill, where all of these quote-unquote thinkers would gather, they spent all their day just asking questions, hearing new things. But when the resurrection was preached, it was too strange for them. Now, if that, in that open-minded environment, Paul was treated with, with such disdain, can you imagine what these believers at Galatia faced? Can you imagine what it was like for them when they ceased to go into the pagan temples? What it was like when all of a sudden their friends, their family members, uh, that it was time to go and to pay some sort of worship to these pagan gods. And they say, I can't, I can't do that anymore. I've been saved. 
I'm in the way now. I know Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God lives within me. Could you imagine what they suffered? You know, it's been said for a long time uh, that uh, the story has been told of Orthodox Jews, and, I, and I've heard this from several sources. I believe it to be true, uh, that particularly in Bible days, uh, but especially, you know, also even to this very day, that an Orthodox Jew, if, if you convert to Christianity and your family is an Orthodox Jew, it's not unheard of for them to literally go buy a casket, have a funeral, and bury you in their mind. I'm talking about go buy a literal casket and have a literal funeral. And if they pass you on the street, I'm talking your own mother or father, if they pass you on the street, they'll just, they won't even treat you like you're there. Orthodox Jews face this. Could you imagine what these Galatian believers faced? Paul says, have you suffered so many things in vain, if it be yet in vain? I think Paul is hearkening them back to the experiences that they have dealt with. Can I say this? That there is no belief system that is persecuted more than salvation by grace through faith. I'll tell you my own personal experiences. I've knocked on doors. I've been up and down streets. And I'll tell you this. I've looked people dead eyeball to eyeball and said that if you don't get saved, then you're going to die and go to hell. And I've had people shake my hand. I'm talking about people that didn't get saved. Shake my hand, thank me for coming, and treat me like somebody. Do you know that I've always had more problems trying to convince someone that claims to be saved, but claims that their salvation is vested in their own good works? I've had more trouble dealing with people like that than people that are lost and undone in their sins. I've had people order me off their property, threaten to call the police, cuss me one way and another, not because I was telling them that they were on their he- on the way to hell, but because I was telling them that they didn't have to do good works to be saved that the cross of Christ was enough. And they've said, get off my property, I'll call the police if you don't. You know why it is man hates this doctrine of salvation by grace? Because it confesses our weakness and inability, and it robs us of any ability to boast or have pride. It's a hated doctrine. Paul says, you really paid a cost when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. You really paid a cost when you did that. You lost loved ones. You lost family members. And he says, was that not real to you? Some of you remember what it was like when you first got saved. And you may have been saved a year, two years, five years, ten years, fifty years. But you remember what it was like when you got saved. You remember the change that took place. Tell me that wasn't real. Did that happen by the works of the law? No, that happened by the hearing of faith. That change that took place in these churches, it took place by faith, not by the works of the law. He gives a fifth argument. He says, He therefore that ministereth to you the Spirit, and worketh miracles among you, doeth he it by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith? Can I tell you something? I've never heard of baptism taking the drunkard and turning him into a Sunday school teacher. I've never heard somebody join in a church and their life truly changing, and it's sticking. What is it that can change a man? What is it that can take the prostitute off the street and put her in the choir? What is it that can take the drunkard out of the bar and put him teaching Sunday school? It's not the works of the law. Oh, there's been many of them that have tried. You know that, right? There's been many of them that wanted to turn over this new leaf, you know? And every year, January will be around before we know it, and everybody will be going out and getting their new leaves for the next year. 
so they can turn them over and turn them over and turn them over and turn them over. You know, the Bible talks about people like that. It talks about a man with an unclean spirit that gets rid of that unclean spirit. And he goes home and he finds his house empty and swept. You know what that's a picture of? That's the picture of reformation without regeneration. Reformation can take away that which persecutes, maybe, but it can't give you that which justifies. And he goes home and he finds his house, and oh yeah, it's swept, and it's clean, but he's miserable. Because he realizes, and listen carefully when I say this, he realizes this truth, that it's not just about what the believer has in his life. It's about what the believer, what about? let me say that again, it's not just about what the unbeliever has in his life. It's about what the unbeliever is missing in his life. God built every one of us with a God-shaped hole in our heart. There's a craving in the human heart to have something more than this world can afford. And it's not enough to just get all the whiskey and the pills and the drugs and the relationships out of that hole in your heart. Something's got to fill it. Something's got to take its place. You know what the Bible says about that man that goes back to his home and it's all clean and it's all sweat? You could eat off the floor. But it says he goeth out and he get, taketh seven devils unto himself. It says the end of that man is worse than the beginning. Why is it? And I, maybe I'm, I'll try to kill this rabbit if I chase it, okay? So you just bear with me. Why is it that the suicide rate is so high amongst the wealthy in this country? I could tell you story after story about people that have worked their whole lives to get to the top. And you know, they found out they got to the top and there just wasn't nothing there. They filled up their barn and they went and built bigger barns so they could fill up those barns. And then they went and built bigger barns and filled up those barns. And finally, when they did all that they could, they realized it wasn't enough. They cleaned out their house and it was swept. They realized how empty it was. And they went and they took seven worse devils unto themselves. They couldn't live with the fact that they had reached the top and there wasn't nothing there but a big old empty starless sky. See, it's not the works of the law that can give a man peace. It's not keeping up with the Joneses, either materially or spiritually. Or could we say morally or religiously. It's not being the best person in the Sunday school class. That's not what changes a man and gives him something that's worth living for. It's not the works of the law. That's not what does that. It's the hearing of faith and the receiving the Spirit of God. So he says to them this, and I believe the context of what Paul is saying in a very historical way is he's speaking about himself and Barnabas, and he's saying, you saw what God did through us and in us. You saw people saved, delivered from the chains of paganism and heathenism. He says, those Judaizers didn't do that. The gospel of Jesus Christ, that's what's done. it. Then he makes a very interesting, and this is sort of an introduction into the doctrinal side of it. Notice these next four verses, and we're going to try to just dwell on these for a little bit each. He says, even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed, 
So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. Now, why is Paul saying this? Why isn't he talking about Moses? He could be talking about Moses, who uh, that counted the uh, the the riches of Christ better, or the counted the you know the riches of Christ better than the riches of Egypt. But he's not. He could be talking about David, who Romans chapter four does tell us was justified by faith as well. But he doesn't bring up these other characters. He brings up Abraham. Why is that? Well, put yourself in the shoes of this church. What do you think it was that these Judaizers were saying to them? You can imagine as these Judaizers arrive and they say, well, you know, we, being Jews, are the children of Abraham. And Abraham is the father of all that are faithful. And it's by Abraham, do you remember what the two stipulations were that the Judaizers put? You had to be circumcised to be saved, and you had to keep the works of the law to remain saved. It was to Abraham that God gave the covenant of circumcision. And so you can imagine these Judaizers looking at them and saying, well, you know, we're the children of Abraham. Abraham's the father of faith. And Abraham was the one to whom circumcision was given. So obviously you must be circumcised to be saved. Let me tell you something. I I, I just love my Bible. Amen. Because I want to show you what God did. Turn to chapter 15 of the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 15. Paul says they want to talk about Abraham. We'll talk about Abraham. Genesis chapter number 15. Now, I want to show you something. When the Bible says that the gospel was before preached unto Abraham, I've heard some people say that that was what took place on Mount Moriah uh, whenever that uh, Isaac was going to be offered. And while I'll go ahead and tell you that's a beautiful picture of the gospel, that's not what Paul's talking about. Paul's talking about something different. Look at verse number 1. The Bible says, After these things the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless, and the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus? Now, again, I want you to remember, what was it when Paul is talking about the gospel being preached to Abraham? It says, the heathen through faith preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, in thee shall all nations be blessed. God has told Abraham that he's going to begin a nation in him. But Abraham did not have a child. And he says to the Lord, all that I have is this Eliezer of Damascus, and he's not my blood kin, he's my steward. And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed. Lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir. But he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. Look at verse 6. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. This is what Paul is talking about. Now, why is this significant? And I'm going to say a word about it again here in a moment. But why is this significant? Turn over to chapter 17 of the book of Genesis. And look at verse number 9. 
And God said unto Abraham, Thou shalt keep my covenant, therefore, thou and thy seed after thee in their generations. This is my covenant which ye shall keep between me and you and thy seed after thee. Every man-child among you shall be circumcised. You say, why is this significant? Because Abraham was justified by faith before circumcision was ever instituted. You know, we have these perceptions in our mind, these preconceived notions. And I was talking to my wife a little bit about this. We were coming home uh, on Sunday uh, from church, and, and I preached Sunday morning on Moses and, and being hid in the rock. We were talking about Moses' face being covered with the veil because he shined. And she said, you know, I wonder how long his face would shine. And I said, well, you know, the Bible never tells us of a time when it stopped. And, uh, you know, so I would imagine his whole life, every time he went in and talked to the Lord, uh, his face would shine, and he'd come out and have to put a veil on him. That's what the Bible says in Exodus chapter 34. And she said, could you imagine how strange it must have been to all of those Gentile pagan nations to see that, that nomadic people, millions of people, journeying through the wilderness in the middle of the day with a vast cloud leading the way, and in the middle of the night with a massive pillar of fire. And here at the front of them is this bent old man, Moses, with staff in his hand, a veil on his face, and an unearthly glow emanating from him. It's a far cry from Charlton Heston, isn't it? We have these mentalities, these frames of mind. When we picture Abraham, we see him as the father of the faithful. We see him as this man that had deep conversation with God. And he was that. But I've had people ask me this before. Why did God choose the Jewish people? Well, that's not really the right question. Because God didn't choose the Jewish people. God chose Abraham. And it was from Abraham that the Jewish people came. So what was Abraham? Well, the Bible says that he was from a place called Ur of the Chaldees. Modern day Iraq. You see, we think of Abraham as the quintessential Jew. But you know what the Bible calls him? And I think it's the book of Deuteronomy that calls him this, a Syrian ready to perish. Here these Judaizers were saying, oh, we're the children of Abraham. We're of the stock of Abraham. Abraham was circumcised. Abraham, you know, he had to do what God asked him for him to be justified. He had to do the right thing. And you're going to have to do the right thing just like Abraham. You're going to have to be saved. Paul says, listen to me, when God called Abraham, Abraham was a Syrian ready to perish. He was a Gentile and a pagan, just like anybody else, just like a bunch of Gentiles in Antioch of Poseidia, just like those unregenerate pagans that I'm writing this letter to. He didn't know anything about God. He didn't know who the true God was. But God thundered from heaven, spoke to him, and told him if he'd just believe him, God would justify He says, those Judaizers are trying to show you how different you and Abraham are. Paul says, if I read my Bible right, you and Abraham have a lot more in common than they and Abraham do. God justified Abraham before circumcision was ever given. So obviously circumcision can't be a prerequisite to salvation. Because in chapter 15, Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. So he blows out of the water this notion of salvation or justification by circumcision because Abraham was justified before he was ever circumcised. But how was the gospel preached to him? In thy seed shall all nations be blessed. 
Sometimes we read the Bible and we read it a certain way and it takes the impact out of the particular nature of the language of the Word of God. And he's going to go on to talk about this later on in, uh, I believe it's, uh, oh, maybe chapter 4, when he talks about the difference between seed and seeds. You see, God takes Abraham to his tent door. And he says, Abraham, I want you to look up at the sky. Abraham says, Lord, I'm looking. And he says, you see all those stars, Abraham? Abraham says, yeah. God says, go ahead and count them for me. Abraham says, God, I can't count them. There's too many to count. God says to Abraham, Abraham, your seed is going to be like that. Not seeds as of many, Paul is going to say here in a little while, but seed as of one. He's not speaking about those that are Jews by ethnicity. But those that are the children of Abraham, look what he says then in verse number 9. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. He says in verse 7, Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. You see, the seed that God was talking about to Abraham was not the, the Jews by ethnicity. And it wasn't even... Uh, necessarily believers, as it were, in, in the multitude. But he was speaking of him whom Isaac represented. Him whom Isaac was a type of, that seed being Jesus Christ. He was saying, in Jesus Christ, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. In Jesus Christ, a way of righteousness, Abraham, is going to be made. So then they which are of faith are counted. With faithful are blessed with faithful Abraham. These Gentiles, and the same thing's true of you and me. We may not, there's a lot of talk about Israel and about the Jews today, and, and I think it's important. I'm not trying to dismiss it. I was uh, reading a thing the other day from the IDF, Israel Defense uh, Fellas. I don't know what the F is, but uh, Force, I believe it is, Israeli Defense Force, saying that, uh, that Gaza fired rockets into Israel and destroyed an infrastructure that provided electricity to Gaza, knocking about 70,000 of their own people without power. Amen. Tell me God don't have a sense of humor. And, uh, you know, I believe that's important. I'm not trying to dismiss that. But let me tell you something. The Bible talks about all of the Old Testament just being shadows to teach heavenly truths to us. And, and they were real events. I'm not saying they weren't. And I understand God has a special place for the Jewish people. I'm not dismissing that. But I'm saying this. When God was talking about the seed of Abraham, he was talking about the Jews. But in a broader sense, he was talking about all those that would put their faith in Jesus Christ and would be placed within that seed. You see, when God made those promises to Abraham concerning his seed, when you and I have been justified, placed into the person of Jesus Christ, we've gained those blessings too. I'm not saying there are not physical, earthly promises that God has made to an earthly people, the Jews, there are. But what Paul is trying to get them to understand is that the promise that God made to Abraham has a scope so much broader than just those that are Jews by ethnicity. So much broader than those that are just by blood or racially Jews. He says that God foreseeing, verse 8, in the scripture foreseeing, that God would justify the heathen through faith, preach before the gospel 
unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. This gospel truth that through Jesus Christ many would come to know him. You can imagine as Abraham looked at those stars, he thought to himself, There's no way. But then he said, If God said it, then there must be a way. And he put his faith and trust in the Lord. I believe this. Not everybody does, and we can fight about it if you want. But I believe salvation's always been by faith. Always. Abraham was justified by faith. David was justified by faith. I believe it's always been by faith. Now, we could argue about how much light they needed and what they needed to know and this, that, and the other. And I guess that's profitable sometimes. But there's no question that it's always been by faith. What was it that covered the sins of Adam and Eve but the shed blood of an animal? And the faith that they put in God, that if he robed them in those skins, he would not place his wrath upon them in that immediate moment. They had to trust and believe God for that. Abraham had to trust and believe God. Abraham, just a Syrian ready to perish, could have died at any moment. And yet God in grace looked down upon him, revealed himself unto him, and saved him by faith. That's the message of faith. Now, again, this is the beginning of a big doctrinal dissertation that, that Paul's going to give. And, it, and at, like a puzzle, this piece will fit in with that. But if I could summarize it to you today, could I summarize it by saying this? God never intended for our church membership to get us to heaven. That's why he gave the promise to Abraham. God never intended for our clothes, our hairstyle, our associations, our baptism, our good works, our service in the church to get us to heaven. That's why I justified Abraham by faith. That's why Christ went to the cross of Calvary. Now, I'm not saying we ought not look right, dress right, do right. Of course we could and should. And Paul's not saying we shouldn't either. He's simply giving us this basic foundational truth, that if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. The law was not given to disannul, and he's going to use that word later on in this book, that the law cannot disannul the covenant that was made prior, that the law cannot undo the promise that was made to and in Abraham concerning his seed. The law had a place and had a function. It was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. But the Old Testament law was never given to justify a man, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. The beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the beauty of what we believe, if we believe the scriptures and if we stand with God on this matter, the beauty of it is that it presents to dying men that are depraved and helpless and hopeless the only shot and the only chance they have at redemption. And it's not vested in anything that they do, but vested only in placing their faith in what Christ did on Calvary.